Thank you uh, again for coming and for um, bringing the church here. We're studying Philippians here for those of you who are new or for those who um, haven't been uh, here for a while or you just kind of been, uh, need to be reminded. We're studying the, the book of Philippians and we're at this very crucial point. We finished the chapter, we're starting chapter two here. And um, kind of what we're talking about, what the, Paul is going to talk about in starting in chapter two is just an appeal as he shifts from talking about his own concerns and his own things going on in his life to uh, the, the needs of the Philippians. You remember, it was just, um, actually it was a while back, but it doesn't seem like it was that long ago when uh, Rodney King out in, in, in L.A. Uh, asked this, this amazing question. He says, why can't we all just get along? We hear questions like this all the time. You hear this when, um, you know, I've mentioned my brother used to love uh, music from the 80s and this group called Depeche Mode, and, and, and they would sing this song that says, people are people, so why should it be that you and I should get along so awfully, or something to that effect. And, and the question as we ask it in church, the, the answer is pretty obvious, right? It's like, we uh, can't get along because of this thing called sin. That's a theological answer. But when we come into the church, it should be, it should be that within the church, we should get along a little bit better than we do. But every time you see a church divide, or you see a church split, or you see people within the church arguing with each other, or you see one faction in a church divide and and you wonder what's going on if, if sin is the issue and these people claim to be those who sin less than others, then why can't people within the church get along? Why can't we be united? Why can't we be one? That's what I want to talk about because Paul, as he's writing to this beloved church, says, nothing would give me greater joy than for you guys to be united as one. And so he's going to tell us how today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if you get this stuff Man, if you get this message today, it will change your life. I promise you it will. I know that happens every week. Every week there's a potential to do that. But I, uh, I really feel like if you get this, if you embrace it, uh, your life will forever be changed. It ought to be. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul here is shifting again from his circumstance to the, to the circumstance of the Philippians. He's talking now not about the persecution outside, but against the threat of unity within. And he says, if, if there's one thing that would make my joy complete, it's that you guys would be united. And so three things that we see in this passage is very simple. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we ought to do. Here's how we ought to treat one another. That's the first thing. The second thing is why we don't do that. 
And then the third thing is, here's how we can be changed, okay? The first thing, what are we supposed to do? So Paul begins in chapter one, uh, in verse one. He says, look, he throws these questions out there. He says, have you ever found encouragement? I mean, have you ever been given new courage and new strength because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Because of the fact that you're a Christian, have you ever found encouragement to live for Christ? Have you ever found encouragement in this broken world? Have you ever found courage to live with more strength because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Does, have you ever been comforted by his love? And when you sang songs that talk about the love of Christ, has there ever been the sense of, of comfort filling your heart, this sense of comfort rising up within you because of his love? Has there ever been, have you ever had this, this sense in which the Spirit of God was so deeply touching you and ministering to you? Have you had any fellowship with the Spirit? Is there any tenderness and compassion in your heart? Have you been changed in such a way that your heart has been made tender and your heart goes out to people because of the fact that you're a follower of Christ? The, the way that he says it here in the NIV, it says, if you have any encouragement, the, quite literally what it's saying is, since you have encouragement, he's saying, if you're a child of God, then of course these things are true. Says, if these things are true, then this should be the mind in you. He says in, in verse two, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Think this is how we ought to act. We wanna be united in the people of God, this is how we need to act. Okay, first he pleads on the basis of the fact that you've received blessing from God, then here's what we need to do. We need to be one in purpose, one in mind, one in love, one in spirit. This, this is how we ought to be as a community of saints. He says this is how we're supposed to act. Now, you think about this, you think about what does it mean to be one in mind, to have one love? I think there's a couple ways that you could see this. Uh, about three years ago, a group of us in here, Pastor Albert, um, Paul, Kim, Olivia, my wife, Joyce, um, some other folks, we went to North Korea. And uh, we we're working with a ministry called Man of Missions that our senior pastor, Inky, uh, is kind of like the CEO of. They have a hospital and they've got a bakery. And as we were there, uh, we got to take these baked goods, right, bread with um, red bean in it, right, red bean paste. We got to take them to these uh, elementary schools and and these schools in North Korea. And it was a pretty cool thing. And we got there, and um, when we gave them the food, we walked in the classroom. One thing that I noticed that was very striking, that every single child, every boy, looked the same. But obviously, they had their uniforms on. Well, you look at, look at all of them, and it was very difficult to tell them apart for me. Every girl looked the same. They had the same rosy red cheeks. And when the teacher asked them, what do you say to these people who brought us the bread? They all said the exact same thing in unison. Obviously, they've been taught that, that when someone comes in and I say, what do you say? Then this is what you say. And so they said the same thing, but they all said it in unison with the same intonation, with the same, uh, with the same tone in their voice. And I looked at them and I thought, well, these guys are of the same mind, of the same love, the same purpose. When you go through their schools, they teach for an hour each day communist propaganda, so they're fed and brainwashed into learning these kinds of things, and so obviously they've got the same mind, the same love, the same purpose. But when I looked at them, I saw robots. That's what I saw. That's one way we can be united and having the same mind and purpose. Another way, another way, and I think a better way to have the same purpose and the same love 
And actually, the word that Paul is using, the phrase that he's uh, making connotations of is this phrase, soulmates. You guys have soulmates? Maybe some of y'all who are married, you have soulmates. They say when you get married first, you're soulmates, then you're roommates, then you become cellmates. Hopefully, we're still... (laughs) Hopefully, we're still soulmates with the one that we're married to, right? But you find this all the time. Maybe it's not a soulmate. Maybe you're not married, but you've got a BFF, right? And you're like, ah, we're BFF. Why? Because we think the same way. We can finish each other's sentences. You see this a lot in eHarmony ads. You know eHarmony? And it's like, ah, they throw this word around soulmates all the time. We don't just connect physically. We're not just like looking at each other and they're a beautiful person and that guy's, you know, hot and stuff like that. But we're connected at the soul level. We're soulmates, and, and, and that's it. They say things like, we, I, felt, I feel like we've known each other for years, even though we just met yesterday. Or, yeah, we can finish each other's sentences, and, and one person starts talking in the commercial, and the other person finishes the sentences. They look at each other, they laugh, and they're like, yeah, we're soulmates. What's the difference between these two, the North Koreans and the eHarmony people? What's the difference between a robot and a soulmate? In the truest sense, it's because these North Koreans were united by virtue of something that, was play, that came from outside of them. It's this external pressure that forced them to be molded into having one love, one purpose. On the other hand, people who've been married, who fall in love with each other, they become soulmates by virtue of something within. It's a unity that comes from inside. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to be robots with each other. In fact, that's not unity. Right? People think, and we, we do this a lot maybe in, in youth ministries, Say, hey, you know, we want to be united, so let's all wear the same T-shirt. You wear green today. Okay, I'll wear green. We all wear green, and look at us, we're so united. But Paul's saying that's not unity. That may be uniformity because you have the same uniform. It comes from outside of you. But unity comes from within. Unity is a spiritual reality. That's why he says united, uh, being one in spirit. He says be one in spirit. How do we become one in spirit? How do we have the same love? How do we have the same purpose? How do we think the same things if we come from such vast backgrounds, we've got sixth graders in here and we've got people who've got teenage kids off in college in our congregation. How do we have the same, how do we have this sense of unity when we're so different, different socioeconomic status, different ethnicity? Maybe some of y'all, maybe not a lot of us, we're relatively, we look similar, but some of us are, are different here. How do we have the same mind and the same purpose? Paul says it's not by being, it being forced upon you, but it, it's by something that comes from within it says, by having the same mind. And what mind is that? It's the mind of Christ. What does that mean? Here's what it means. The mind of Christ is one that did nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considered others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The attitude of Jesus that caused people to be united, no matter what the differences in background were, is the fact that they considered others to be better than themselves. They looked not only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. Now think about a church in which churches divide, or there's friction, there's factions, there's schisms, there's spasms, whatever you call it. Think about churches like that. What is it that defines it is because people are always wanting their desires to be met. They're wanting their interests to be satisfied. They're pushing their agendas, their own desires, considering themselves better than the opinion of other people. And so Paul is saying, Here's what he's not saying. He's not have this sense of, of an alternate reality where someone is worse at you than tennis, but you say, you know what? He's a lot better than me at tennis. Or this person makes uh, $100,000 and you make $10,000. 
or no, you make $100,000, they make $10,000, and you say about them, oh, they make more money than me, they're better than me. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying lie or be this, have this false humility. But he's saying the way that we treat each other, we consider others to be more significant than us. That instead of just thinking about our own interests, a group of us want to go out to eat. I've got to be somewhere in an hour and a half, and so I want everyone to eat closer to where I've got to go even though it inconveniences everybody else. That's looking to your own interests, not the interests of other people. We all pay $5 for a bunch of pizzas, and there's one piece of pizza left, and you want that more than everyone else, and everyone else wants it, but you just decide to steal it when no one else is looking. That's looking to your interests above the interests of other people. He's saying when we have the mind of Christ, we consider others to be better than ourselves. We consider them to be more significant than us. So the very things we would want for ourselves, we then begin to want for other people. Saying if we have this mind, then we can be united no matter what's going on. See, the Philippian church, and he'll say this in in, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, but the Philippian church was going through some division. They're having some difficulty in being united. And so he's, he's modeling this thing of putting others before yourself, and then he brings it explicitly out here. He says, consider them to be more significant than you. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, we need to pretend a lot. There's two kinds of pretending. There's one pretending where it's a hypocritical kind of pretending. I really hate this person. I really hate you know, everything about them, but I'm going to pretend to be nice to them, and then I'm going to go and talk badly about them. Because that's not a good pretending. Because when we're children, on the other hand, we pretend, don't we? I used to pretend when I was a kid that I was a football player, right? And I would um, get my stuffed animals, and they would be my football. And I would, we would have this couch, and, and it would be the long, uh, the long way. And I would run, and I would, like, dive as if I was diving over the goal line into the end zone. And I would dive, and then I would say, touchdown, David Kim, and I would get really excited. And then um, our, the sofa was on wood floor, and so it would always slide, and I would be, like, get really happy and then get in trouble because there was, like, marks all over the, all over the floor. But we pretend when we're kids And what C.S. Lewis is saying, a lot of times we need to pretend as adults also. We need to play make-believe in a sense. Because when we pretend as children, whether we're a soldier, we're a baker, we learn things about that so when we get older, we're a little bit more prepared to go into that vocation. We learn things as we play pretend that help us in real life. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying is that we need to pretend in a sense that we are Jesus and think about in this situation, how would Jesus act? And we don't talk about, uh, I don't talk about what would Jesus do a lot because uh, I, I don't want to advocate this sense of um, moralism. Right? We've just got to do what Jesus does. But in this particular sense, because we're going to get here at the end, we, in a lot of ways we have to pretend and consider others to be more significant than us. That We do these things and we force ourselves to do these things until it begins to shape and change our hearts. And Lewis says, in time, our hearts do change. When we act as if we love, our hearts begin to change that we begin to love them. That's why Jesus says, love your enemies, not because you have this feeling like, I want to love them, pray for those who persecute you. Oh, I really feel like praying for them. No, saying as we do it, as we move out in faith, our hearts begin to change. He says, when you do this, when you live in this way, you can create community and unity. Here's the thing. When he talks about this, he's saying, each of you need to live this way. In order for this to happen, it can't just be like 10 of y'all doing it. It can't just be about 50 of y'all doing it. It's got all of us doing this together. He's saying each of you should look only to, not to your own interests, but to the interests of other people. You ever been in maybe 
you guys do this now. I don't know if you still do this in, in middle school or high school, or I doubt you do this in college, but there were times growing up in, uh, when I was in school where it would be the end of a semester maybe, and the teacher would say, hey, um, if you guys behave well, and you finish out these last two days well, then on Friday, we're going to have a party with pizza, and we're going to watch a movie. And everyone is so excited. They're like, oh, my gosh, we've got to do this well. We've got to do this right. And everyone is, like, looking at the people who are the troublemakers, and they're like, come on, you know, you got to. And so you, you, you act this way, and, and you try and get it all right. And then uh, Thursday comes around, and then Friday morning comes, and everyone is like, so do we get a pizza party? And the teacher's like, no. Like, why? We all did it well. He said, no, not all of you did it well. One person was talking while everyone else was taking their test. And because of that one person, you guys all lose out on the blessing. That's what Paul's saying. Like in a congregation of 120 people, 119 can do it. But if one person is looking out for his or her own interest, it could cause the blessing to be lost on all. It was just two people here in the, in the, in the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 says, and he say, all of this letter was written because of the sake of these two people who are fighting with one another. And so this is what we need to do. It's pretty simple, right? We need to do this. Here's why we don't do it, though. Here's why we don't. The second thing. From the moment we're born, from the moment we're born, we're born with this desire to have our needs met. It's pretty simple, right? When babies are born, they cry. I remember when Manny was born, I was so excited and so just tickled and delighted that I took videos on my little dinky cell phone that can only record like 10 seconds at a time. But I took videos. The first eight videos I took were all of Manny crying. They're all her crying. She's like, ah, yeah, and screaming. And, and she was hungry. And as a newborn, she's been in the earth for about maybe like 30 minutes. The only thing she knows how to do when she wants her needs, but she can't, she doesn't wake up and say, ah, daddy, I need food. She starts crying. That's what she does. It's, that's what she does. That's her mode of self-preservation. That's, her, that's the only thing she knows how to do. She knows that if I cry, then mom and dad is going to take care of my needs. And the older she gets, she begins to realize this. And so she falls down. She cries. And this is when she's, she's growing up and she's getting older, a month old. She cries. We know that something is wrong. We know that she's not trying to manipulate us. What is it? It's either her diaper is wet, she's hungry, she's sleepy. Right? That's what it is, right? I think that's all it is. And she starts crying because she wants her needs to be met. And so she cries. It's like conditioning. She cries, and then mom and dad come, and they help her. And so as she gets older, the older that she gets, so she realizes something. Aha, aha. I cry, my needs get met. And so she begins to realize in her devious little mind, I know that she's cute and she's beautiful, but she's a bundle of original sin nonetheless and full of it. And so she knows. She begins to manipulate us. And so whenever she doesn't want to do something, she doesn't want to eat this food, she cries. Whenever she wants something that she cannot have, she cries, thinking that we're going to give it to her. And so we've, Olivia and I have wised up after being like parents for a few months, and we realize that we're not going to give her everything she wants just because she cries. So the other day, she's learned to, okay, okay. She's, she's having this kind of battle, this, this, this test here between can I defeat and break the will of my mom and dad? And so I was holding Manny, right? And she decided that she wanted to box me. And she started hitting my face. And so I looked at her very sternly, and I said, Manny, no. And she knew that she was in trouble. So what does she do? Her defense mechanism, just like her daddy when daddy was younger, she would start crying. 
Because when she cries, she gets out of trouble. She starts crying. And immediately, both Olivia and I knew that she wasn't really crying. She just wanted to get out of trouble. So we just started, we just started, we just busted out laughing like crazy. And Olive had to turn around and run into the kitchen because she was laughing so hard. And all of a sudden, Manny stopped laughing. He just stared at us. He's like, I guess it's not going to work this time. You figured me out. See, what began as a desire to have her wants or her needs met slowly degenerated into wanting to have her wants met. And the older we get, the more we continue to do this. So Manny's got this cousin who's, about two, who's two years old. And her cousin was hanging out with her grandparents. And to her grandparents, she is the apple of their eye because she's the only one in proximity with them. And so here's Manny's cousin, two years old, playing with her, being just filled with all kinds of love. All of a sudden, Manny goes to visit her cousin. And now grandma and grandpa are so excited that there's two of them there. And so the love that went to older cousin now is going to the little one, Manny, and is being divided. And so what happens? The older cousin begins to get jealous. And she says, wait a second. I'm the one who used to get all the attention. Now this little one is getting it. And now this little one wants to play with my toys. And so what, I'm gonna, what am I going to do? I'm going I'm to prevent her from playing with my toys. And so every time Manny would play with the toys, older cousin would go and she would grab it and she would put it far away from her. Every time Manny would climb on top of uh, older cousin's toy, older cousin, we have a picture of older cousin trying to choke her and to pull her away from it. Really funny. But the older we get, the, we begin to realize that life revolves around me. That's what we think. We get older. We get older and we do this. It begins in infancy, but it, it, you move to a toddler. Toddler has a, a younger sibling now, and all of a sudden, dad and mom are giving the attention to the younger one, and so the, the older one starts throwing a fit until they recognize me. And what began as a defense mechanism, as a way of having our needs met, becomes a way for us to manipulate and to steal and to want other people to meet our desires. And what Paul is saying here is, look, even as older people, we begin to live this way. If we live this way, looking to our own interests, not to the interests of others, then we will crucify community. It will never be formed in your church if you're only looking after your own interests. Literally, what Paul says, here, here's, let's read it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here's why we can't do what Paul said we ought to do. is because we live with selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition is basically saying, I want what's best for me, and I will step on other people in order to get there. That is the outworking of it. It's selfish ambition. But vain conceit is the underlying motivation that drives us to want to act out in that way. What is vain conceit? Literally, the, the word that Paul uses here is a word called vain glory. And if you read your King James Bible, if you read Middle English, you hear this word a lot, vain glory. Literally, what it means is being empty of glory. The word glory, we, we know it means weight. Okay, so here's what, here's what Paul is saying. The reason why we step on other people and we want our needs met is because we are empty of weight, because we feel weightless. Let me, let me break it down a little bit more. Here's what he's saying. Because all of us are empty, lacking, starving for glory, that's why we act out in selfish ambition. Because all of us want to be somebody, and we feel like the only way I can get it 
is if I step on other people to advance my cause at their expense. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, if your church operates like that, then you'll never be united as a community. Then you think you're little. You try to be big. You think you're marginalized. You try and move to the center. You think you're a nobody. You want to be a somebody. And you do that at whatever cost to anybody else. It starts out with having the desire for our needs to be met, and then it becomes this thing where we just want our wants to be met. And Paul's saying, look, it's never going to happen if that's going to be your attitude. We're so full of ourselves that we cannot give to anybody else. Unless you become emptied of yourself, you will never be united as a people of God. You know, there are times when we forget about ourselves. This is, this is, you know, we see this in moments of crisis, moments of tragedy. September 11th, uh, Hurricane Katrina, Haiti. In those moments, people don't give a rip about my socioeconomic status. They go and w- may, they, they're, they're ballers, they're billionaires. They go down to Haiti. They go to ground zero. They go to, to clean up and sweep the streets of New Orleans. It doesn't matter how much money I make. It doesn't matter my ethnic background. It doesn't matter the fact that I've never met them before. We forget about ourselves in these moments of crisis and tragedy, and we get there, and we can can unite hands, and we can be united. Paul's saying that happens when we forget about ourselves, but here's the problem. As soon as 9-11 changes to 9-12, or give it some time, as soon as the dust begins to settle in Haiti, or the floodwaters begin to recede, then we go back to thinking about only ourselves. Again, unity is not something that can be pressed upon us by these outside external things. And how can we be united? What we need to do, forget about ourselves, be selfless. Why we don't do it? Because we're selfish people lacking glory. Here's how we can change. Paul says it's not by waiting for some external force to press us together. It's by losing ourselves in the sight of another. So it says in verse 5, and this is one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture. is your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Here's what he's saying. Jesus Christ, very nature God, he is God. He did not consider the divine attributes of God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, something to be used and manipulated for his own advantage, but he let that go and he became nothing. He who was divine in the very essence of who he is, he became man. He became what he was not without losing what he was. Fully God and yet fully man. Did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. It's the opposite of what we see in Bruce Almighty. You remember this movie where Bruce realized that he's got this divine power and he starts singing, I've got the power. And then he's walking around the streets and he turns around and he points at the fire hydrant and water starts coming out. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then he makes um, Michael Scott. Michael Scott, before he became a paper guy, is, is working as a newscaster. And so Bruce Almighty makes him start talking in funny words, and he starts talking gibberish. And he's, like, really excited about that. And he's driving on the road, and, and he makes the cars part like the Red Sea so that he can beat traffic. See, Jesus wasn't like that, though. Even though he had divine power, he did not use it for his own prerogative. He did not use it for his independent purposes, but he let all that go. And it says he 
humbled himself and became a man. That he who was God became a human being, clothed in glory, wrapped in mortal flesh. From the highest of heights to the lowest of depths he came, and it says he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Here's what it says. Because when you look at it, it says in, in very nature of a servant, it means for all intents and purposes, he was a servant. Every time you looked, anytime anyone looked at him, they saw a servant. And the word that Paul uses here is a slave, but not a common slave. It's a word for bond slave. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Typical slaves in those days would work for a master. And then at a certain period of time, every seven years, there was a thing called the year of Jubilee, where debts were canceled, slaves set free, people go back to their hometown, and every seventh year, slaves would be set free. But the word that Paul uses here to talk about Jesus is not a normal slave like that. He's talking about a bond slave. Here's what a bond slave is. In the Old Testament, a bond slave was someone who said, I am so devoted to my master that even after seven years, even after 14 years, even after 21 years, for the rest of my life, I'm committed to be a slave in the house of my master. And the way that he would show it is he would take himself to the doorpost of his master's house. He would take a nail and he would pierce his ear with it to the, to the doorpost of his master's house. And he would say, forever and ever and ever, I am committed to you as my master. And what Paul is saying is, this is who your God is. This is your God. He came not only to be a man born in a manger, but he came for the very reason to be a bond slave for all of his life, to be enslaved for the purposes of God for your sake and mine. This is your God, and this is my God, and this is who he is. But it says he would become even more undignified. Can we use that word? Even more undignified than this. Not only did he become a man, not only did he become a servant, not only become a bond slave for all of his life, but it says being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. The only human who ever lived who did not need to die because he was not subject to the effects of sin, the only person who did not need to die voluntarily gave his life. 99% of people in the Roman Empire would die by being beheaded because it was quick, it was painless, it was simple, it was done. Only the worst, no Roman citizen would ever be crucified. It says he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The only Roman citizen who would ever be crucified on a cross were those who committed the highest of treason. They say anyone who ever witnessed a crucifixion would have nightmares over and over and over again because of the horror of this death. It was the most painful and excruciating and humiliating death because they were stripped naked and they would die either by suffocation, either by starvation or thirst or being eaten by wild animals who would come and prey upon their, their uh, dying bodies. It was the worst of death reserved only for the lowest of people. Saying this is what Jesus Christ came to do for you and for me. You see, the thing that we need to understand is that Jesus Christ was everything that we wanted to be. 
He, he was the ultimate in somebody. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. You see, this was the exact opposite of Adam and it's the exact opposite of us. When the serpent said, you can be like God, he grasped for that fruit, thinking that he could become somebody, thinking I could be like God, that I could finally be somebody. And that's how we are also. If I could just be somebody, but Jesus was somebody, but he let all that go and he emptied himself to become a nobody. Our worst nightmare, dying in oblivion, being a nobody, living my entire life, never being recognized, never being anybody, Jesus took upon himself the worst nightmare that you and I could ever dream. He took upon himself our worst fears, and he became our worst nightmare on the cross. And the truth of God, the pro- here's what it says. Therefore, because of all that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's saying the only way you can be who you ever dreamed of being is not by selfish ambition, vain conceit, stepping on other people. He's saying the only way you can do it is by going down and becoming nothing. You see, you try and get your way up says God opposes the proud, but it's grace that he gives to the humble. See, we all want a name. We all want people to know us. We all want the recognition. We want to be somebody in school. And God says, here's how you can have it. Here's how you can have it. You want to feel like your worth, life has meaning, has worth, has value, has significance. Here's how you do it. Not by going out into the world and doing all you can to, to divide your church, and divide your community by doing what's best for you? No, the way that we do it is by humbling ourselves. And seeing that Christ has done that for you, you can then do that for other people. See, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. All the angels of heaven and all the saints who've gone before us joined the church triumphant, bought by the blood of the Lamb. They will bow. Everybody on earth, and it doesn't say we'll all do this willingly. Every knee will bow. Some of them who only then recognize that this is why I was created. And every knee will bow under the earth. All the demons in hell are going to bow and recognize that he is Lord. And they too will recognize as they would always have to pledge their allegiance and say Caesar is Lord. He's saying, look, they'll see something different. That even the evil people, even Nero, this Roman, evil Roman Empire, are going to bow the knee and recognize what this persecuted little community in Philippi recognized. That Jesus Christ, the crucified Lord and Savior, is God. That he's Lord. And he holds this image of Christ before a divided Philippian church and says, in light of him, I plead that you would be united. And he puts this image before us. And he says, in light of the wonder and the work of our God, who's done this for you, his plea is be one in Christ. Let's pray. We um, respond as we reflect. Let's think about this. What are the ways in which we've divided the community here in your church? 
What are the ways in which you look at people and consider yourself to be better than them? Who are the people that you look at and consider yourself to be better? What are the ways in which you've let selfish ambition destroy community here? Let's take a moment to confess that to the Lord and then begin to pray, God, change me so that I might consider them more significant than me. Let's take some time to pray that to the Lord. God, help us to be people who understand the humility of Christ, are moved by that, and because of that can offer ourselves to one another. Let's take a moment to pray as we respond to his word in this way. Let's go beyond the teaching of today's scripture and let's pray and and examine our hearts as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. For those who are baptized, confirmed, 16 and older, as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, let's examine our hearts and see if there's any ways in us that are dishonoring to the Lord, ways in which we've not lived a life that has been worthy of the gospel. Let's confess that to the Lord as we receive his grace through forgiveness through the table. Let's continue to pray and ask the Lord that he would prepare us. Maybe it's in our pride, maybe our laziness, maybe it's in our lust, maybe it's in our lack of love for people, it's in our anger, in our deceit, our lying, whatever that might be. Ask God that he would search our hearts, change us, mold us, make us clean before him. Let's continue to pray as we examine our hearts as we prepare to come to the table. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that teaches us of the great humiliation of Christ, that he took upon himself the greatest fears and the worst nightmares of humankind, and he did that for us so that we might have what only Jesus Christ deserved, the right to be called children of God, dignity, worth, significance, value or otherwise it was impossible to find. We pray that in light of what you've done for us, Jesus, you would help us to go forth in building and creating community, building communities of unity, and that you would help us to be people who are surrendered to you, who walk in humility, and in so doing, picture forth the beauty and the wonder of Christ. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name.